Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with John Hood on Carolina Newsmakers. John, of course, is president of the John William Pope Foundation. He's been a frequent guest on our program. And uh, 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 we are always glad to have John on because he his thoughts are uh, well uh, organized and help uh, bring out different aspects of the news and uh, shine a, a different uh, view of uh, that uh, I think is uh, always necessary. We we like to have people representing all political views on our program, and we uh, uh, even though I get some mail from time to time that say I have guests that lean one way or the other, we try to balance it off. And and uh, we've always felt like on um, Carolina Newsmakers that we uh, do not try to guide our guests into making uh, statements that are uh, are ask questions that lead them into situations that they have to. Uh, try to establish a policy or a belief or so forth. We we usually let them have a little bit of uh, latitude, and we have always done that with John, and he's always been very reasonable about it, I might add. He's never tried to uh, take advantage of that, I don't believe. That's my opinion. Uh, well, I appreciate John, that. Uh, b- before we get back to talking about issues, you're always working on some uh, very interesting projects. What are you working on right now? you well, I've been writing a series of historical fantasy novels set in early America. I have two of those novels published. The third book is in production now, and that will be published next year. And these are stories. The first book is about the American Revolution primarily. The second book, uh, which is called, uh, the first book was called Mountain Folk. The second book, Forest Folk, was largely about the War of 1812 and the Trail of Tears. The third book is called Water Folk. And this will be largely about the Texas independence movement, the the, the Alamo, and then the subsequent uh, American-Mexican War of the 1840s. So this will depict many other events, but uh, the, the wars tend to be a big part of the story. One of the books I'd like to see you do it would be based on the Battle of Kings Mountain, which is... Uh, uh, well, that's in my first book. Called... Yeah, I, I actually depict the Battle that? of Kings Mountain in my first book, Mountain Folk. Um, I did not know that. I I depict the other mountain men gathering in what is now East Tennessee and southwestern Virginia. I depict them marching through the mountains and stopping at various places. I depict them assembling a cow pens and then ultimately going to uh, Kings Mountain to to the battle, charging up the, the plateau. I depict the entire battle. Now, I have lots of historical depictions in it, but there's also some hellhounds that breathe fire and some other magical creatures that are part of the story, but it ha- it helps to make certain kinds of points I'm trying to make about American history. It's symbolic. For, for years back in the 1950s, Kings Mountain had an outdoor drama called The Sword of Gideon, mm. which uh, was about the Battle of Kings Mountain. And uh, it did I pretty much the same thing I, I'm hearing you say that you did in your book. Uh, but uh, by the way, if you have never been, and I'm sure John has, but uh, if our listeners have never been to the Kings Mountain Military Park, it is extraordinarily well done. Uh, it is a national military park, which is a little different from a national park. But the uh, museum there uh, is well done and uh, uh, makes an interesting one-day visit. If you're looking for something to do for one day, I would suggest that you go to Kings Mountain. It's uh, uh, right on the South Carolina border, of course. Uh, the, the park is, uh, I think the military park is more in South Carolina than it is in North Carolina. 
That's but, true. Uh, there is also a South Carolina park near the near the military park. And this is more of yeah. a traditional park. So you can, you can actually do both things. You can go to the military yeah. park. You can walk the battlefield itself and read the markers and see lots of interesting things. And then you can actually go to the South Carolina park where there is some historical buildings, I believe, and a big yeah. field you can play in. I've done all of these things. Well, it, it, it's a great trip. And I think it's underpublicized. I think it's a, it's a great visit. So if you're looking for something for a family trip, uh, one day or less, you're in the Charlotte area or going to be in the Charlotte area, I would suggest going to the Kings Mountain National Military Park and, and uh, spend the plan to spend a day. You can spend an entire, well, I'm talking about an eight hour day, uh, but uh, it's, it's very well done. So much for that. Okay. <clears throat> Moving on. Let's talk about the General Assembly and what is going on in the General Assembly in this session. Uh, what has happened so far and what do you anticipate happening in the remainder of the session? The most consequential thing is always the enactment of a budget, state budget, in odd number of years, and this is an odd year in many ways, including numerically, um, they pass a two-year budget, and then in even number of years, they come back in a somewhat shorter session, and they adjust the second year of the two-year budget. So this is the, the, the passage of a two-year budget. The House just passed its version of a budget. It has a, a substantial uh, increase in spending though that's partly because inflation is so high. They have the House and the Senate together have negotiated over the course of time what amounts to a cap on annual state spending growth that stays within a combination of inflation, which this year is rather high, and population growth. So the House and the Senate have already agreed to the number. So it's just a question of what their respective priorities are going to be. The House plan, which was enacted or was just passed the House, and now the Senate will take up and do their own version of the budget over the next several weeks. The House plan has significant pay raises for teachers and, and state employees. It has a some acceleration of tax cuts that are already built into current law. So there'll be additional tax relief on top of the baseline. It has a significant appropriation into what's called the State Capital and Infrastructure Fund, SCIF. This is something they started several years ago to sort of uh, guarantee a certain amount of money goes to capital improvements, either new buildings or new facilities for universities and community colleges and state agencies. Or, and I think this is at least as important, repairs and renovations of existing buildings. So the amount that will go into this, it, there's already a statutorily required amount of, I think, a little over $3 billion or something like that that would go in over the next two years. And the legislature is going to add another $1.3 billion to that over two years. So there's a lot of money going into capital improvements, both new buildings, which some of these institutions really need new buildings to keep up with, with some, some of their needs. And then there's actually a lot of repairs and renovations that need to be done across state government and various agencies and departments and even local governments. They also put a billion dollars into clean water projects, uh, wastewater treatment and clean water projects. So there's a lot of sort of heavy capital investment in this budget in addition to pay raises. There's also uh, some other policy changes in the budget. Uh, but the, the main thing for me are these basic numbers. You've got a spending increase that is not above inflation and population. You've got significant over two, two years double digit increases for a number of state employees, teachers. And you have 
uh, as I said, the acceleration of some of the tax cuts that are already built in. Right now, North Carolina is set to pull its personal income tax rate down uh, another point or, or more, and the corporate tax will go away entirely by the end of the decade. So the House plan preserves this or even accelerates it in some cases and makes some other tax changes that I think will improve North Carolina's competitive position. Uh, others disagree, naturally. But the Senate is probably going to come in with some different priorities. And so we'll have to see how that works out between the two uh, chambers. Some of the issues that have even been filed under separate bills may end up getting swallowed into the budget negotiations at the end of the legislative session. For example, the House and the Senate, there, there have been bills proposed in both chambers to uh, advance school choice. Uh, senators, the, the Senate bill, will expand the current opportunity scholarship program, make it easier for families to qualify for it, higher income families, uh, not as much of a requirement that families transfer out of public, transfer their kids out of district run public schools in order to qualify. So there'll be additional school choice options available under the Senate bill and house legislation, whether that will end up being hammered out and be separate legislation enacted by the chambers or whether it'll end up being folded in the budget, we'll have to see. But I think the budget bill is significant. I also think I mentioned this earlier, Don, but the bill that's already been enacted, which I'm very glad about, is this rioting bill. We know that whether it be the events in Washington in January 6th of 2021 or events around the country, or even events here in North Carolina where we've had protests that in some cases devolved into riots that damaged property and endangered people, uh, people attacking police stations and attacking policemen, police officers, and other kinds of destructive behavior that is not simply politically uh, expressing your political views, but is actively rioting and destruction of property. That has now become a much more serious crime under a bill that both chambers enacted, and the governor uh, was not able to successfully veto it, so he didn't try, uh, because they had a supermajority in both chambers for the rioting bill. So that's already been enacted. So has a bill that got rid of what North Carolina did for many decades, which was the pistol permitting system. You could go and buy a rifle or a shotgun, and you still undergo the appropriate background check, of course. But if you're going to buy a pistol, you had to also get a permit from the sheriff's department in your county and then go to the store and then go through the background check again. So the legislature got rid of that and made some other changes in gun laws, including a, some promotion of gun safety. The, the governor did veto that bill, and the legislature overrode it. As I mentioned earlier, in this case, it wasn't, there were Democrats who voted, I think, for the original bill. But what happened was it wasn't the Democrats joined with the Republicans to override the governor's veto in the North Carolina House. What actually happened is several Democrats were absent, including Trisha Cotham, were absent on the day of the vote. Three of them, in fact, none of them said they were, quote, taking a dive. They were, they had, I think Cecil Brockman, who was a representative, uh, said that he had to go to urgent care. Trisha Cotham had to go to a previously, previously scheduled hospital visit. And Michael Ray, who's another Democrat who sometimes votes for Republicans on issues like that, he had a family emergency come up. They weren't there. The bill was therefore passed. It was the, There was an override of Governor Cooper's veto. Democrats were absolutely apoplectic about this. Progressive activists were furious. They were calling for Cecil Brockman and Michael Ray and Trisha Cotham to be somehow punished, taken out in primaries. They were so angry about it that it may have been 
the reaction to that event may have been one of the things that tipped Trisha Cotham over into actually ship, uh, switching parties. She may have been, she said that she had been considering this issue anyway, that even when she got back to Raleigh after 10 years, she had been in the legislature some years ago for 10 years, been out of the legislature. She had run for Congress in the Charlotte area and didn't get the nomination. So she was out for several years. She came back. She came into the legislature at the beginning of 2023. It was, she says, it felt like a different place. The Democratic caucus felt like a different place. So maybe she was already going to consider changing parties, but it was this furious reaction to the gun bill that may have tipped it over or at least affected the timing of her announcement. So those are some of the main things that have been happening in the legislature. There are many other bills that have been filed. We'll just have to see how everything comes together. But I am told that they are still on schedule to finish this session uh, in a reasonable time, that we may, in fact, have a state budget enacted by both chambers, sent to Governor Cooper, uh, and either he vetoes it and they override it or he doesn't try to veto it and that we might get that in place by the end of June. And it's important to remember the story I haven't even mentioned yet, which is Medicaid expansion. This bill yeah, passed both chambers. Up. Yeah, this bill passed both chambers after years of Republicans resisting it. They did, in fact, both pass both chambers. Governor Cooper, of course, has always wanted Medicaid expansion, and so he signed the bill. But the Medicaid expansion bill that they did agree to is relies on the passage of the state budget. If for some reason the state budget doesn't pass, the Medicaid expansion doesn't happen. So I think Governor Cooper probably couldn't stop a state budget anyway with a veto, even if he tried. But now he's not even going to try because it would, in fact, imperil the one thing he can claim to have accomplished this year or maybe his entire second term of any consequence, which is Medicaid expansion. So those are the, the headlines for me for the legislative session. And we'll see what the what the next few weeks and months hold. But that's a lot of news by itself. Medicaid expansion, changes in gun laws, potential expansion of school choice, big budget items that I mentioned before. These are these are major, uh, major stories. Interesting summary, John. Thank you very much for that. John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation, our guest here on Carolina Newsmakers. We have one final segment, and we will do that right after we take time out for these messages. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them, but I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT, G-O-A-T Acronym stands for Greatest of All Time As in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. 
Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Our guest on Carolina Newsmakers this week is John Hood, who, of course, has been with us a number of times. Uh, John uh, is uh, president of the John William Pope Foundation and uh, uh, has uh, also served as chairman of the board of the John Locke Foundation from 2015 to 2021. And uh, amongst other things now, he is uh, teaching a course at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. And, of course, is uh, always writing things. And we've talked about the, the uh, I guess, fiction books that you're writing right now. Do you have any nonfiction books in, in, in your uh, uh, list of projects that you're going to do, John? Yes, I do, because I need more things to do. So well, I also have a project. I, I've been doing a project now for several years, and we may have talked about it before, based at Duke University called the North Carolina Leadership Forum. That program brings together three dozen leaders at a time. We do a statewide version every fall. We do two regional versions every spring. So we bring together about 30, 35 leaders, some government leaders, some business leaders, some nonprofit and civic leaders. We talk about an issue of interest. For example, our our, uh, regional programs this spring, we're talking about housing affordability, housing adequacy, which is a big issue in much of North Carolina. But the real reason we bring these leaders together is to build relationships, allow people to learn how to argue with each other rather than just bicker with each other. We think this is an important distinction that you can have a real and productive conversation with people you disagree with without it devolving into name calling and and idiocy, as we see so much in politics today. So that's a project I've been working on with my uh, progressive counterpart, Leslie Winter, when we did this pro, when we started this project in 2015, she was running the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation, a more left-leaning philanthropy, and I was about to lead the John William Pope Foundation, which was a right-leaning philanthropy. So we got together to work on this one thing we agree about, which is that we ought to have constructive engagement across the political divide in North Carolina. Now that we've been doing this for a number of years and have some evidence that our program seems to be improving the situation, we're interested in replicating the North Carolina Leadership Forum into other states, places like Pennsylvania or Michigan or Georgia or Colorado. And to do that, we need a book that describes how this came about, what our theory is for how leaders can help to improve the discourse around the country, and a description of how our program successfully improves the situation. And so that's a book project that Leslie Winter and I will be working on over the next several months. Interesting uh, uh, that uh, we probably ought to do an entire program on that sometime because that is, uh, of course, what a lot of people in the middle of the political uh, arena feel like ought to happen, that we ought to have more intellectual discussions, uh, debate, and uh, reasonable discourse. Uh, John, when you were going through all the items in the House version of the budget and also the proposed Senate version of the budget that is now being considered by the General Assembly, I did not hear anything that you said about transportation. So in this budget, what uh, uh, you might want to go back and tell us how much and how they're viewing transportation, because as we know, uh, <laughs> the uh, road tax situation is is not paying it the way that it used to pay what so what's going on in uh, in uh, road construction and transportation budget well there, there is a lot happening and you're certainly right that there's been a long-term trend of declining revenue from the gas and motor the motor vehicles tax 
It isn't, of course, because our tax rate has been lowered. In fact, it went up, up a little bit um, in, some years ago. And it was really about the fact that uh, it's good news in a way. It's good news that as the car fleet is turned over, as people have sold over older cars and bought newer cars, they have been buying cars that are more fuel efficient. So they get more miles to the gallon, which is a good thing, uh, usually. And some of them have even been buying hybrids and electric vehicles, which you could argue was a good thing if you want to. I'm not so sure about that, but I'm, I think people should be free to drive whatever car they want to drive. But what's happened by both of those trends, both the fuel efficiency trend, which is the dominant part, but also this growth in vehicles that are partially or fully fueled by electricity but through storage of batteries rather than through motor fuels, um, in that case, you get you collect less gas tax, obviously, per mile that is driven on the state's roads. That means that over time, we're simply not going to have adequate revenue flow for people using the roads to pay to improve them, to pay to keep them up, to pay to add roads to pl in places where we need where we have a lot of congestion and we need to improve the the number of need to increase the number of arteries going in and out of major metropolitan areas. So um, everybody knows this is a problem and in the past, they resolved it by doing things like applying the tax to the sale of cars. Uh, they raised the gas tax. There was there have been some toll projects that have been created, uh, both tolls run by government agencies, government authorities, as in the Triangle or the Monroe Expressway uh, in the east side of the Charlotte area, or the the toll lanes that were put in with a public-private partnership in in the North, north of Charlotte on I-77. So there've been tolls, there've been changes in, in other tax rates. But in recent years, the decision was made last year, actually, to uh, start increasing the amount of sales tax that's collected from just retail purchases to devote more of the sales tax to uh, transportation projects. And the argument is that people buy auto parts and other kinds of supplies to operate their vehicles. And that is subject to sales tax, maybe that sales tax ought to be uh, transferred over to the highway fund. Years ago, it used to go the other way. We had all these highway needs, but we actually were transferring money out of the highway fund, the highway trust fund, away from roads. Now we're actually transferring more and more revenues into the road system, even if they're not coming from gas taxes or, or car taxes. I think on balance, this was probably the most reasonable solution they could come up with. So that is continuing, Don, this year. There'll be a, a, even more uh, of that happening, sales tax transfer to roads. It's not going to be a long-term solution. We're still going to have to resolve this issue in the long run. I should mention that one proposal that speaks to this that was just filed a few days ago uh, was a proposal to change the composition and the uh, who chooses which people serve on, very, I think, nine different state agencies. One of them is the North Carolina Board of Transportation, which is currently mostly uh, uh, composed of appointees by the governor. This bill, as I understand it, would change it so that most of the appointees would be uh, would be chosen by the legislature. So this will give the legislature more authority over the Board of Transportation, over the Environmental Management Commission, and several other boards and agencies and, and commissions in state government. So that's another big bill that uh, I think was proposed in the Senate. I might be wrong about that, but I know it's already been filed as a bill and we'll see what happens with it. Naturally, the governor is not going to want to do this. Governor Cooper is not going to be for it.
But this could be one of those things. This is really more of a balance of power question between the legislature and the executive branch, where there may be enough votes in both chambers to pass this bill. Now, something like this was tried several years ago when Governor uh, Governor McCrory, the Republican, Pat McCrory was governor, Republican leaders in the legislature attempted to change the appointment powers, reduce the appointment powers for the governor and give it to the legislature. Uh, governor McCrory at that time went to court, supported by other former governors, went all the way to the Supreme Court and won that the, the Constitution requires a separation of powers and the governor needs to be in charge of populating certain uh, executive branch agencies, not the legislature. Now, one might argue the same Supreme Court decision would apply to this new bill. I don't know. Maybe it does. Perhaps legislative leaders believe that the Supreme Court, as, is, as it is now constituted, might see this issue differently, or at least see that these boards are different from some of the other boards that were previously litigated. So I think that's another big issue to watch. Whether obviously when you have a legislature under control of one party and the governor under control of a different of the other party, there's going to be a lot of tension between the two branches. That happens. It's always going to happen. But even when the Republicans held all three, even when the Democrats held the governor's office of both chambers of the legislature, there was still fights about the relative power of the executive and the legislative. And we're going to see that play out again this year. John, this is maybe an unfair question, and uh, it, it's kind of a loaded question, I guess. Where do you go? Where does John Hood go when you want to find an unbiased account of the news? Because obviously it appears that most of the cable news channels um, lean one way or the other in their reporting of the news. Uh, so what? where do you go when you want to find out what you feel like is an unbiased account of what's happening, where you get a complete background. Well, there's That's a lot, lot of questions. things where I'm not sure I can find something that is genuinely unbiased. But what I what I would argue for is diversify your diet. So I'm not I wouldn't suggest everybody should just eat greens all the time. It's good for you. Eat more spinach. I mean, it's good for Popeye. It's good for everybody else. Eat more spinach. Actually, what you're really sure about that because I'm not real sure about that because olive oil was obviously very thin. I'm not sure that she ate a healthy diet. I I don't think she did because I never saw her eat any spinach. I always saw Popeye eat the spinach. Oh, that's true. But the point I'm making is that's okay. If you want to learn, I think the only way to be a good citizen today, to be an informed citizen who participates and votes in a good faith way, I think you've got to consume a lot of different kinds of news sources. For example, at the national level, it is simply not the case that there's no one out there reporting the news. There's a wealth of good news reporting from the, the major national papers. Like if you want to get a good balanced diet, you read the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. Um, you read opinion from the Wall Street Journal type writers and the Washington Post type writers. Uh, you can go and read magazines like National Review who have more of a conservative perspective, but have a lot of good news and analysis of the news. You can also do the same at the New Republic or the American Prospect. So I like to read different sources. You mentioned cable news channels, and I'll have to tell you, Don, even though, as you know, I was on television for a long, for a quarter of a century off and on, um, I don't really watch television for, for significant news anymore. I just, it's just not, I, I think it is mostly people yelling at each other, which is not interesting to me. And I can get a lot more news by reading and by listening to the radio. I just find that 
I just find that to be a much more efficient use of my time. I get some, I get more useful things. So that's how I do it. Um, I do have some newsletters that I subscribe to, and I would definitely urge people to look at whether in, in North Carolina, looking for North Carolina news or looking for national news, go to Substack, go to some other places and do some searching. You'll find some varieties of different sources. And for me in North Carolina, for example, you read the Carolina Journal, which I founded, which has more of a right wing. You should also read what used to be called Policy Watch, which is now North Carolina Newsline, to get a more left-leaning take. And those are both real news outlets. Diversify your diet. Good advice. And I would wholeheartedly agree. And I think that's uh, something that uh, people should really pay attention to. Diversify, diversify, diversify. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. And uh, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear the entire broadcast again, or as I said, share it with a friend. John Hood, we look forward to you coming back. Until next time, have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.